With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads. To save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Store's influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Boomers from just 18 euros 72 cents. Half-price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Dunn Store's always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Sean Bentler was an adult who lived off of his parents. He had two children to support, couldn't hold a job, and his parents were getting tired of supporting him. Then, he told his girlfriend that if his parents were dead, he wouldn't have to worry about money anymore. This is Monsters. Sean Bentler was born on February 5, 1984, in Iowa to Michael and Sandra Bentler. Mike owned a couple of lumber stores in southeast Iowa. He owned a mill and feed store as well, and the family were very successful financially. Sean grew up in the city of Bonaparte. He was the oldest of four children. Mike Bentler was born on May 16, 1953, in Fort Madison, Iowa, to Gervais and Darlene Bentler. After high school, Mike attended Northwestern Missouri College. He had learned carpentry from his father, and it led him to the world of building. Sandra Mendez was born on December 5, 1958, in Fort Madison, Iowa, to A.B. and Julia Mendez. It's unclear where she met Mike, but they were married on July 18, 1987, in Colorado. They eventually moved to Bonaparte, where they built their own house overlooking the Des Moines River. The couple became the owner-operators of the Mount Hamill Lumber Yard and went on to also own the Mount Pleasant Lumber Yard and a mill and feed store in Donaldson, Iowa. 
After having Sean, Sheena was born on November 9, 1988. She was very athletic, pitching on the softball team, running cross-country, and playing basketball. She was also on track to be the valedictorian of her graduating class at Harmony High School. She was in the National Honor Society and the Society for Academic Achievement. Shelby was born on December 27, 1990. Like her older sister, she also participated in softball, track, and basketball, and was in the Society of Academic Achievement. She took after her mother in that she enjoyed cooking and entertaining. People that knew her said that she was a really good cook who loved animals. Shayna was born on May 26, 1992, and not surprisingly, she too played softball, basketball, and ran track. She was a member of the school art club. People that knew her described her as a free spirit. Growing up, the siblings were said to have been close. Sean didn't perform as well academically as his sisters, but not to the point of failing. He was said to be an average student. There's only one record of him getting in trouble at school. He got into a fight with another boy at the beginning of his senior year. Some people claimed it was over a girl, but the boy he fought with, Eric Rupert, said that the incident had nothing to do with a girl. He said that Sean had returned to school after the previous summer break and he had changed. He had an attitude, was bragging about his wealth, and was bullying him, which led to a fight. Both students were suspended for a couple of days. Sean graduated from Harmony High School in 2002. After that, he and a friend, Keith Gratz, moved to Quincy, Illinois to go to John Wood Community College. Sean dropped out after only one semester and began working at the Home Depot in Quincy. Though Sean claimed that his parents paid his tuition and rent, that might not be the case. Though Keith considered Sean to be his best friend, he said in a later interview that he was a lousy roommate. He said, quote, he was lazy and he was terrible about paying bills, especially rent, end quote. Keith said that when he would ask Sean for money to pay the bills, his roommate would drive down to Bonaparte and return with jewelry and bags of quarters. Keith assumed he was stealing it from his parents. Not long after moving to Quincy, Sean met a woman named Nicole Pickard and she ended up getting pregnant. Chloe Bentler was born in 2002, but the couple didn't stay together. Sean had visitation every other weekend and was supposed to pay child support, but it's reported that he had trouble keeping up on the payments. Sean moved around a bit in Quincy before he moved back down to Bonaparte and started working with his father. Sean said during his testimony at trial that he started working in his parents' business when he was 13 or 14 years old for $5 an hour cash. When Sean moved back to Bonaparte, he helped his father design and build houses, which friends said paid him good money. Sean just didn't seem to have the motivation to gain success through hard work and moved back to Quincy in 2005. Once back in Quincy, Sean worked at the local Lowe's for a while before moving into the car sales business. He had trouble maintaining a job and his final employer was Neil Coleman Auto Sellers, where a Neil deal is a good deal. Around this time, Sean started dating a woman named Lexi Leslie, who became pregnant with his second child. Ava Lee Leslie was born in 2005, and Lexi said in an interview that she broke up with Sean when she was about two months pregnant. By October of 2006, she said they had been working to repair their relationship. Back in Quincy, Sean lived with two roommates, Anthony Logson and Travis Holder. Sean's best friend, Keith, said that it seemed like Sean enjoyed selling cars, but he tended to embellish his success. He would always come home from work boasting about selling a car, but when he was asked for money to pay bills, he would always say he was broke. At the end of September of 2006, Sean was fired from Neil Coleman Auto Sellers. It's reported that he told his managers that his father had died of a heart attack, possibly as an excuse for absences from work. 
when the manager called the Bentler's lumber company to express his condolences, he was informed that Mike Bentler was in fact alive and well. At this point, Sean had no job, he was behind on his bills, and he had two children to support. He also had a suspended license and was supposed to appear at court for unlawful possession of drug paraphernalia on September 19th, but didn't show up. Things were closing in on Sean, and he needed to find a way out. On October 14, 2006, at 3.38 a.m., 14-year-old Shayna called 911 to report that someone was in their home. She told the operator that her mother told her to call 911, but she wasn't sure what was going on. As the operator was attempting to identify the emergency, Shayna said, quote, My brother is going to do something, but I don't know what, end quote. In the background, Sandra can be heard yelling, quote, Sean, don't, end quote. Shayna repeated what her mom said to the operator, telling them, quote, My mom keeps saying, Sean, don't, end quote. Suddenly, a gunshot is heard on the call. Shayna is hiding in the closet, but Sean knows where she is. You can hear the closet door creak open, and then Shayna exclaims, quote, Sean, no, end quote. And then, more gunshots before the line went dead. At 3.39 a.m., another call is made to 911. It was 15-year-old Shelby using Sandra's phone, but by the time the operator got to the call, there was nothing but clicking sounds. It's believed that Sean took his roommate's car in the middle of the night and drove the hour and 20 minutes to his parents' house, arriving at around 3.30 a.m. Mike was an avid hunter, and he had many guns in the house. Some may have even technically belonged to Sean, who had spent his youth hunting with his father. He went to one area of the basement where the guns were stored and took a twenty-two caliber rifle from the case. As he was loading it, he dropped a round on the stairs going back up to the first floor. He crossed the room and went down a different set of stairs that went to the basement area where 17-year-old Sheena's bedroom was. He shot her with the small-caliber rifle, counting on the fact that the rest of his family wouldn't hear the shot all the way up on the second story. He had closed the door at the top of the stairs to help muffle the sound. Sean went up to his parents' bedroom, where authorities believed that Sandra had woken up and was near the door to the master bedroom. Sean shot his mother in the right jaw. The bullet went straight through her face and exited her left jaw. Bleeding, Sandra ran to the bed, yelling for Mike to get up. When Mike came to, he saw Sean with the rifle and managed to get up out of bed and went for his son. The two struggled and Sean quickly hit Mike in the head with the butt of the rifle before shooting him once in the leg and once in the head. Sandra managed to get past Sean and start running down the hallway, yelling for the girls to call 911. This is when Shayna called 911, and you can hear Sandra pleading with Sean before he shoots her in the hallway at the top of the stairs. It's possible that Sean heard Shayna on the phone, and that's why he went for her next, or she could have just been in the next closest room, but based on the 911 recording, she's the next person to be shot to death. Evidence showed that Sean went into her room and put the gun barrel up to the phone and pulled the trigger. Sean went down the hall into Shelby's room and found her hiding in her closet. As he pulled the trigger, she put her hand up and the bullet went through her arm and into her chest. Sean pointed the gun directly at her head and pulled the trigger again. At some point in all of this, Sean's cell phone ends up on a table in the upstairs hall. It's unclear how it got there, but he probably didn't notice it was on him anymore because he was in a hurry to leave the house. Now that he knows 911 has been called, he turned off the lights and rushed out of the house. He drove his roommate's car down a service road behind his parents' house, where he threw the rifle in a ditch. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. 
As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash bestmusic for details. Van Buren County Sheriff's Deputy Robert Cavanis arrived on the scene at 3.55 a.m. He knocked on the door, but there was no answer. When Deputy John Zane arrived at the scene shortly after, the pair began investigating the situation. They checked the perimeter, and when Deputy Cavanis looked into a sliding glass door off the master bedroom, he could see Mike's body laying on the floor. He said it looked gray, and when he knocked on the door, there was no movement. With guns drawn, they entered the home through the sliding glass door and scanned the bedroom. The first thing that stood out was a gun by the sliding door. Upon further inspection, they identified it as an airsoft gun. There was a table that had been at the foot of the bed that was knocked over, and the body was laying face down, close to the door into the hall. Deputy Cavanis checked Mike for a pulse, but couldn't find one. They found spent twenty-two caliber shell casings on the floor and blood that led out of the bedroom into the hallway. When they shined their flashlights down the hall, they could see Sandra slumped forward with her right arm resting on the seat of a wooden chair. Deputy Zane was familiar with the Bentlers and called out to Sandra, but got no response. At this point, the two deputies decided to exit the house and wait for backup since they weren't sure if the shooter was still in the home. While they waited for backup, they checked the vehicles parked outside to ensure nobody was hiding in them. There was a white Chevy Tahoe, which was Sandra's, and a red Chevy pickup, which was Mike's. After Deputy Brad Hudson arrived, the three re-entered the house and began clearing the scene. When they left the master bedroom, they went into Shana's bedroom where they found her sitting up in her closet, dead from a gunshot wound to the head. As they got to Sandra's body further down the hallway, they checked for a pulse and found none. Next, they entered Shelby's room where they found her in her closet, also dead from a gunshot wound to the head. Once the upstairs was cleared, the three deputies made their way down to the main floor of the house. There was another bedroom on the main floor, but it was being used as an exercise room. Still needing to locate one last family member, the men walked down a set of stairs to the basement. It was a large open room with a pool table and a wood stove. On the walls were heads of taxidermy deer, and at one end of the room were full bodies of another deer and a black bear. On another end of the room was a safe and a couple of gun cases. The safe was open, one of the gun cases was unlocked, and one of the rifles was missing. The deputies cleared the other rooms on that side of the basement but didn't find Sheena. 
when they realized that there was more basement that they weren't able to access from where they were, they went back up to the main floor to look for another set of stairs. They made their way down that set of stairs to the final bedroom where they found Sheena laying in her bed, dead from a gunshot wound to the head. After clearing the garage, the deputies secured the scene and called for the next few rounds of responders, EMTs, medical examiner, and agents from the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation. While deputies Cavanis and Zane waited for the investigators, they drove down the service road that led out to 235th Street. They would occasionally stop and check the dirt road for tracks, but it wasn't until they got to the end of the road that they found some tire impressions that looked fresh. When agents from DCI arrived on the scene, they made a cast of the tire impression and took pictures. During the investigation at the scene, the medical examiner arrived and ruled the cause of death of all of the victims' gunshot wounds to the head. Forensic technicians found Sean's cell phone sitting on a table in the upstairs hallway, right by Sandra's body. The police in Quincy were notified that Sean was a suspect in the murders at the Bentler home, and the police there put out a bolo for him and his 2004 Honda motorcycle. It wasn't long before a patrol officer spotted the bike and pulled the driver over. After identifying that he was Sean Bentler, he was placed under arrest and taken to the Quincy police station for questioning. Sean made things easy on authorities by not only operating a motor vehicle with a suspended license, but now he had a warrant for his arrest due to his failure to show up for court on the charges of being in possession of drug paraphernalia. Iowa DCI agents Bill Keatsman and Daryl Simmons made the trip down to Quincy to interview the prime suspect in the murder of the Bentler family. After getting his rights and some basic information out of the way, they asked him about his relationship with his family. Sean claimed that he had a great relationship with all of his family members. He specifically said he got along great with his father and they never fought. Then they questioned Sean about what he was doing the previous night. According to Sean, he was home all day watching television on October 13th since he's not supposed to be driving, and his roommates went to a football game that evening. He said that his mom came by and surprised him at about 10.30 that night and talked to him for about 15 to 20 minutes. He told them that she usually didn't come into his house, and he went out and sat in her Tahoe while they talked. He told her he was struggling with cash and asked if he could borrow some money. After his mom left, he went back inside and continued to watch television. He told the investigators that Anthony went to his mom's house where he fell asleep and that Travis came home at about 12.30 a.m. and went straight to bed. Sean claimed that he was asleep on the couch when Travis got home, and then he fell back asleep in the living room. He said that he woke up at about 7 a.m., which was the time that Travis had to leave to go to work, and then Keith came over at about 8 a.m. Keith hung out for a little while, and then he left to go to work at about 9.30. Sean told the investigators that he was on his motorcycle that day because he was going to Keith's work to use his phone to call his mom. He said that he must have left his phone in her Tahoe the previous night because he woke up this morning and couldn't find it. He said he assumed it was in the Tahoe, but then he added that if she found it there, she would have brought it inside. After a little more information gathering, the agents told Sean that something had happened to his family, and the call to 911 indicated that it was him who was there. Of course, Sean denied ever being there, and when he realized that at least some of his family was dead, he put his face in his hands and started crying. Then, when he looked up to respond to the investigators, they noticed that there were no tears on his face. After telling Sean that everyone in his family was dead, one of the agents read the 911 transcript to him. Quote, no, no, Sean, don't do this, end quote. And, quote, Sean, no, end quote. His own family was identifying exactly who had murdered them. 
Even though the evidence clearly pointed to him, Sean refused to admit that he had been at his parents' house that night. He eventually told the agents that he didn't want to talk anymore. Sean was booked into jail in Quincy, and his clothes were given to the forensic examiners. They found some blood drops on one of his socks, and when the DNA was compared to the victims, it turned out to be a match to Sandra. When investigators talked to Sean's friends and roommates, holes began appearing in his story. According to Keith, after he got to Sean's, he got a call from his mother who told him that Sean's family was dead and that Sean was a suspect. He told authorities that he didn't tell Sean the news and asked him to call his mom. When Sean told him he didn't have his phone, Keith gave him his phone and supposedly Sean called his mom but didn't get an answer. After that, Keith said Sean was calm and didn't seem concerned about anything having to do with his family. Keith said he was freaked out about the whole thing and called his boss to tell him he wasn't coming to work that day. Then he went to Bonaparte to be with his family. So Keith wasn't at work that day, so Sean wouldn't have had a reason to go to his work to use his phone, though Sean might not have known that Keith had called into work that morning. Sean was originally held on a $1,000 bail from his original charges of possession of drug paraphernalia and a number of traffic violations before his murder charges went through. He called Keith and asked him to bail him out, but Keith said he wasn't comfortable talking and refused to bail him out. Investigators waited for Travis to get home before they searched the house that Sean rented with him and Anthony. Travis told the agents that he had gone to a football game and got back home between 12.30 and 1 in the morning, but he said when he got home, Sean was awake playing video games. When they asked him about the Ford Festiva he had been driving when he arrived home, he told them that it was parked in the same spot this morning that he had left it in the night before, but he noticed that it was almost out of gas. He said he had at least a quarter tank of gas when he parked it the day before, but the next morning the tank was so low he was afraid he wouldn't make it to work. He told the investigators that he doesn't lock the doors and leaves the keys in it, so Sean has access to it anytime it's there. He's supposed to ask before he takes it, but he doesn't always. Travis then told them that Sean didn't seem to like his dad and was always complaining about him. Sean had vented to Travis that his dad didn't want to support him anymore. He thought that Sean was an adult and should be supporting himself. The last time he had been in jail, Mike refused to bail him out. It sounded like Sean's gravy train was at the end of its tracks. The agents got Travis's permission to search his car and they discovered that he had four tires that were all in pretty good shape, except for one that was literally brand new. The little rubber spikes on it hadn't worn off yet. They took pictures of the tread on all four tires to use as a comparison to the tire impressions taken on the service road. The following day, investigators did a thorough sweep of the areas around the Bettler home as well as either side of the service road. They finally found a 22 caliber rifle in a ditch off the service road. Forensics test-fired the rifle and it matched the murder weapon. A search of Sean's cell phone records showed that he called Anthony at 11.43 p.m. on October 13th and then a different friend at 12.09 a.m. on the morning of October 14th. That wouldn't be possible if he had left his phone in his mom's Tahoe between 10.30 and 11 o'clock that night. A search of the Bentler phone records showed that Shayna got a call from her cousin, Ashley Wilson, at 10.20 p.m. on October 13th. Ashley reported that after talking to Shayna for a few minutes, Sandra got on the phone to tell her that it was late and to not stay on the phone too much longer. So, it was not possible for Sandra to be in Quincy at least an hour away between 10.30 and 10.45. This was a story that Sean made up in order to explain why his phone was at his parents' house. 
The final piece of evidence that sealed Sean's fate was that the tire impressions at the scene came back as a match to the tires on Travis's car. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you. Sean was charged with five counts of first-degree murder. He pleaded not guilty and maintained his innocence throughout the entire trial. He waived his right to a jury trial, so the case was argued in front of the judge alone. During the prosecutor's opening statement, he explained the theory of what happened to the Bentler family in the early morning hours of October 14th. After Travis returned home between 12.30 and 1 in the morning, Sean was there, awake, and he waited for his roommate to fall asleep. When he was sure Travis was out cold, he took the Ford Festiva down to his parents' house in Bonaparte. He killed his entire family, which was important because his family was worth about $2.8 million and he didn't want to share that money with his sisters. He had to make sure they were all dead. At some point while he was there, he set his phone down. He may have checked the time on his phone after discovering his sisters called 911 and set the phone down on the table. Others believe that Sandra might have woken up when Sean arrived and went downstairs to talk to him. He may have set his cell phone on the kitchen counter, and when she went back to bed, she instinctively picked it up and placed it on the upstairs table, where there were other phones. After waiting for his mom to go back to sleep, he began his massacre, where he got a drop of Sandra's blood on his sock. Then he took the Festiva out of the area using the service road, so he wouldn't pass the sheriffs who were surely on their way to the scene. He stopped at one point on the service road to toss the rifle into a ditch. He would have been better off tossing the rifle in a nearby river, but he was too afraid of being pulled over with the rifle in his car, so he tossed the gun where it would eventually be found. He left the tire impressions in the dirt as he pulled out of the service road and returned to Quincy where he parked Travis's car back in the same spot, but didn't replace the gas he used. Before the trial started, Sean's defense filed a motion to suppress Sean's clothing that had been taken at the time of his arrest. They claimed that the collection of his clothes violated Sean's Fourth Amendment rights. Those would be the right against unreasonable searches and seizures. The judge ruled that the clothing was collected legally and he denied the motion. Then Sean stood up and addressed the court. He said he wanted to argue that his trial counsel had not preserved his constitutional challenge and such a failure constituted ineffective counsel. The judge told Sean to sit down. He explained that he had no reasonable expectation of privacy once he was arrested and his clothes were collected. 
At trial, witnesses testified about Sean's whereabouts, about his money problems, about his comments that his parents were cutting him off, about him hating his dad, and the discrepancy in the fuel in the Festiva. But the most damning testimony came from Sean's on-again, off-again girlfriend and mother of his youngest child, Lexi Leslie. She took the stand and described a time the weekend before the murders when they had taken their daughter to a park and she told Sean that he needed to get a job. He responded, quote, When my parents are dead, I won't have to worry about money anymore, end quote. Then he asked her if she would still let their daughter be around him if he had murdered someone. Sean's defense argued that their client was innocent because he didn't have means, motive, or opportunity to commit the crime. They flat-out claimed that the investigators were not able to find one shred of evidence that would lead to a motive for the crime. I'm sorry, $2.8 million isn't a motive? Sean was broke, had no job, and his parents were tired of giving him money. If his whole family died, he got $2.8 million. That seems like a pretty simple motive. The defense went on to say that Sean didn't have opportunity because his roommate had seen him when he got home between 1 and 2 a.m. and was seen again at 7 a.m. They claimed that Sean wouldn't have had time to travel to Bonaparte and back in that amount of time. It was an hour and 20 minutes if you drove the speed limit. I don't know how much math is required in law school, but that's more than enough time to commit the crime. We already know the attack happened just after 3.30. Travis said he didn't remember exactly what time he came home, but Anthony said he dropped him off most likely somewhere between 1 and 1.30 in the morning. So it's clear that Sean left at about 2 a.m. and drove the speed limit since he obviously didn't want to get pulled over. He couldn't have stayed there much past 3.40, 3.45, so he left, stopped to dump the gun, and drove the speed limit back home, which would get him there just after 5 a.m., Let's say he stopped to clean himself and or the car. He's home at 5.30 or 6. There's absolutely no reason why Sean couldn't have committed the crime. I have no idea why the defense chose this argument. The defense then argued that Sean had no means because he didn't own a gun, even though his parents' house was full of guns. Like Sean couldn't have possibly picked up one of the many guns at his parents' house, some of which he was experienced shooting. The arguments are just baffling. They argued that Sandra's DNA got on his sock because she did his laundry for him, something else an adult should be doing on their own. She had dropped his laundry off at his house when she visited him on the 13th at 10.30 p.m., even though Sean never said anything about her dropping off laundry and the fact that she couldn't have possibly been in Quincy at 10.30. They argued that there was no other blood on his body or his roommate's car, but Sean shot his family members with a small-caliber rifle from a distance, so he would very likely not have gotten any blood on him. The defense claimed that the tires were common and could have come from anyone. The truth was, the tire impressions at the scene not only matched the size, tread, and brand of the new tire on Travis's car, it was confirmed that they both came from the same factory in Peru. The likelihood that they were someone else's tires was much lower than the defense wanted the judge to believe. Sean took the stand and testified in his own defense where he claimed that his relationship with his parents was great and they took care of everything he needed. The strategy was to make it seem like Sean had more to lose if his parents were gone, but the testimony by all the people who had heard Sean complain about his father cutting him off and claiming he would be rich if they died was much more believable. Sean also claimed that his mother didn't have good vision and normally wore glasses, but if she was woken up, she wouldn't have her glasses on. 
This, he said, was the reason she misidentified the attacker on the 911 call. On cross, the prosecutor punched holes in Sean's story of having everything he needed taken care of by his parents. He pointed out that Sean stole from his parents, then he pawned what he had stolen. Why would someone do that? Because they needed money. Why would he need money that badly if his parents took care of everything? The prosecutor made it clear that Sandra had poor vision, and Sean confirmed what he had said earlier. The prosecutor then asked why, if his mother encountered an attacker that she couldn't see that well, would she assume that it was him? If she couldn't see the assailant that well, wouldn't her own son be the last person she assumed it was? Sean sheepishly agreed with that assumption. Then the prosecutor asked if Shana wore glasses, to which Sean said no. Shana's vision was just fine, yet she still identified her own brother as the shooter on the 911 call. Then he brought up the phone calls that he had made at 11.43 and 12.09, when his phone was supposed to be in his mom's Tahoe. Sean claimed that he did make the first call and must have been mistaken about the time, claiming now that he didn't remember when his mom had come down. He denied making a call at 12.09, though. So Sandra drove an hour and 20 minutes in the middle of the night and visited him somewhere close to midnight, Then, somehow after he left his phone in his mom's Tahoe, someone else called one of his friends? So if Sean is to be believed, his mother drove down to Quincy, arriving after 11.45pm, though he somehow believed it was 10.30. She brought him his laundry, which had her DNA on a sock, though she had no other cuts and abrasions on her at the time of her murder. He left his phone in her Tahoe when she left sometime around midnight. Then, while his mother was driving back to Bonaparte, someone used his phone to call one of his friends. Sean went back inside and went to sleep, and when Travis came home not long after, he somehow saw Sean awake playing video games, though he was mistaken. During the early morning hours, someone driving a car with the same tires as his roommate's car went to his parents' house and shot them all. Both his mother and sister mistook that person for Sean. His mother mistook someone else for her own son, and then his sister also mistook them for her own brother. Meanwhile, back in Quincy, someone went up to Travis's Festiva and siphoned the rest of the gas out of it. On May 24, 2007, Sean Bentler was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder. He was given five life sentences without the possibility of parole. Four of them were to run concurrently, but one count for the murder of his mother was to run consecutively. The judge explained that the murder of his father and sisters was brutal, but he couldn't speculate to the exact details. The murder of his mother, on the other hand, could be heard on the 911 call and the fact that he shot her in the face and then chased her down the hallway while she begged for her life showed an act of true merciless evil. Sean appealed his conviction using the exact same argument he used to try to get the evidence tossed out at the beginning of his trial. His defense argued once again that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated when they took his clothes after he was arrested. He was told once again that his rights weren't violated and his appeal was denied. And let's pretend for a second that his clothes were suppressed at the trial. Would that change the outcome of the trial? He was identified by his own family members on the 911 call. That was the main piece of evidence in this case. His mother and sister both identified him as their attacker. Then you add the tire track, the cell phone, the testimonies of his friends and girlfriend. Even if the appeals court found that his rights were violated, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the case. It was just a waste of time. 
Sean Bentler will not be able to inherit his parents' estate, and it will be split between the last two heirs, his daughters. The Bentler's will specifically stated that their estate would go to their children, but in the event of their children's death, it would go to their grandchildren. Due to their age, the funds will be put into a trust. Sean Bentler still maintains his innocence. Like many of the family annihilators I've covered, he will stubbornly go to his deathbed claiming that he was wrongfully convicted, not realizing that it makes him look like an even worse person than he already is. He's a monster who not only killed his parents and his sisters, but now claims that they mistook someone else for him while they were being killed. So, he's a monster and an asshole. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul Annual Appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie.
Thank you. Shrink your Christmas bill at Dunn Stores. Delicious free-range 4-kilo Irish turkeys are just $39.99. And incredible unsmoked centre-cut Irish ham is now just $13.59 for 2.75 kilos. That's 20% off. King prawn cocktail and oak and peat cold smoked salmon are just €6. Plus, with our 10 or 50 grocery voucher, you save even more. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher abused in next grocery shop of €50 or more.